We're kicking off a new sermon series today, looking at the book of Colossians together over the next four or so weeks. Zoe's going to come in a minute and she's going to open up uh, the first part of this book. But if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 1 together this morning. And this is what it says. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for, uh, and of the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in all things, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So I'm going to invite you up, I'm going to pray for you, 
and we're looking forward to what God has to say through you today. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for such rich words from Scripture this morning. We thank you, Lord God, that in the words that we've already read, we get a glimpse of who you are. And I pray, Lord, this morning for Zoe as she opens this passage up for us, that we will hear your words speak directly to our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, minister to us through Zoe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It is good this morning to start our new sermon series together, as Luke's just explained, because I get the privilege to open up our series, and I get to explain the why we're going to look at this together. Why are, why are we studying this book now, and why was it written in the first place? Who were the community receiving this first, and how is God speaking to us through this this morning? So we are in the book of Colossians, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae. And so far, through the month of September, we have spent time studying as a church about this theme of worship. How worship is more than a song. We've explored the how-to of worship, if you like. What does the Bible say that worship looks like? We are to raise up our hands as a sign of victory and surrender. We are to bring our gifts before God, whether that's our talents or our finance. We're to pour out our hearts of lament before God because he can handle it. And then we are to bow the knee. Bow the knee in pursuit, surrender, and confession. And we have been equipped, almost, for the how-to of worship. And we want to invite you to have the freedom to worship God fully in this place. But through this series, studying Colossians together, our heart is that we would be excited again about who it is we worship. Today, we are going to focus in particular on the supremacy of Christ. Who is Jesus and why does he deserve our worship? Paul presents a case that is rich, that is poetic, and that is beautiful about who Jesus is why he is supreme, why he is superior. And this text alone is kind of standalone, and it's powerful on its own, but I want us to understand it in the context of the lives of those who it was written for first, and what Paul was motivated by when he wrote it. And I think that will really help us today underline this passage. So what was Paul's motivation? At this point, Paul is in chains, and he is writing this letter imprisoned, for declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as a church community that is receiving this encouragement from Paul, we know that they are a community not known by Paul. He hasn't planted this church. He doesn't know this group of believers. He hasn't walked with them yet, but is encouraging them to continue in their faith. We know this because in verse 7, Epaphras was the one who planted this church community. He's a co-worker of Paul, upstanding in his faith. And we are led to believe that he has visited Paul in prison and has shared with Paul the pressures that this church faith-filled community are facing. The cultural pressures of the day and the fact that they are facing a potential compromise from turning away because the pressure is too much. And Paul writes to them to encourage them, to equip them, to call them to a higher devotion and warn them not to become distracted. 
And before we go any further, I kind of want to see how he opens up this letter, how he starts this encouragement. He opens it up, not with a lecture, not with this is what you're doing wrong or this is what I want you to do instead. He starts with a prayer of thanksgiving and then he reminds them who Jesus is. We thank God when we pray for you. We have heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for one another. What positive acclamation. May that be said about us, about individuals and when people talk about us as a church here at Hope. That when people think of us, they think of us for our faith and for our love for one another. And then Paul goes on to encourage them to think bigger, to think about how the gospel is bearing much fruit all over the world. And he then prays that they would grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that's a great prayer. Paul's prayer for the people is that they would grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Church, may we grow in faith, in our love for one another, and in our spiritual wisdom and our understanding. As we study this together over the next month and in our life groups, that's our prayer, that we would see again who Jesus is, fall in love with him as we worship him, and grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because Paul wants this community to live a life worthy of the calling of Christ that has been given to them pleasing him in every way. He wants them to be strengthened, and he has a heart for a group of people that he's never met. He is calling them to live a life of higher devotion, free from distraction, and he wants them to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. They haven't gone massively or drastically astray. They have a faith in Christ, but they have a risk of the cultural pressure of the day around them. And he prays, gives thanks for them, and then tells them again who Jesus is. Today, church, I wonder what Paul would say to us, what Paul would say about us. I wonder as a church as a whole whether we need this reminder. We have a faith, but we are at risk of cultural pressure, risk of compromise or being distracted. Today's not a lecture, I hope our sermons never are, but it's an imperative, it's a call to worship. And I pray that our study together of these few verses will lead us back to the feet of Jesus. Paul is faced with a challenge, a community that he doesn't know, that he longs that they would grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they would live a life of high devotion, free from distraction. And he does this by reminding them exactly who Jesus is. So we're going to study verses 15 to 23 together for a moment. And if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to come along with me because I'm going to break down the description of who Jesus is verse by verse. This Bible's at the back or feel free to get your phones out. But as we go through this poem as such, we're going to break it into two sections. And we're going to look at it, like I said, verse by verse, this description of who Jesus is. And in between these two sections, we're going to have an interlude where we go to the Gospels to see Jesus embodied, if you like, the image of the invisible God with people in this dialogue of distraction and devotion that is very famous, that is very familiar to us. But as we go, we're going to see who Jesus is, 
what he's done and what he will do. Layer upon layer, I pray that our spirit would be excited as we see again who this Jesus is. So let's look at verses 15 to 17 together. And I group them together because they show us that Jesus is the human embodiment of the creator God. What do I mean by that? Firstly, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What a statement. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, through the incarnation, through what we celebrate at Christmas, God becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us, shows us who God is. My mind races to another part in the Gospels where Jesus is in a dialogue with his disciples. And he is telling them not to be afraid, not to be troubled, not to be worried, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the disciples don't quite get it, And Philip, in particular, is asking a question in response to Jesus. And he says, Lord, show us the Father. And then that would be enough for us. In other words, we want to see God and then we'll get it. And Jesus' response is, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have lived with you, walked with you, breathed with you, done life with you, you, if you've seen me, have seen the Father In other words, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He makes God known to us. So that's firstly who Jesus is. Then we read that he is the firstborn of all creation. God became flesh and Jesus makes God visible to us. We hear echoes of scripture In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God made humanity in his image, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The full character of God can be seen through Jesus. And then we know that he is the firstborn, which again in Old Testament is a phrase that is repeated again and again. And it tells us of this rich imagery of who Jesus is, his royal status over creation. If he is the firstborn, then he is the first in line, therefore rules over creation. Maybe like me, you have the song, the children's song in your head, if you know it. Um, the king of the jungle, do you know that one? He is the king of the jungle. He is the king over creation. But not only that, Jesus shares in the very identity of the God who created. Because we read in him, all things were created. Verse 16, for in him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So Jesus rules over creation, but he was the one who created all things. And not only that, things were created for him. Did you see that two words at the end of that verse? Creation was created for him. In other words, we are created for him, created to give him glory. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He rules over creation. He created creation through him, and then creation is created for him to give him the glory. And then finally, we add this kind of final description in this section of who Jesus is, this 
layer to the symphony, if you like, of description, that Jesus isn't just the image of God, the ruler of creation, that things were all created in him, we then read that he sustains creation. Because he was before all things, and then in him, all things hold together. So he is the image of the invisible God, the ruler of creation, the creator himself. They're created for him, we're created for him, and then he sustains all things. He's not just involved in creation at the beginning and then walks away. Jesus is still now holding all things together. And I wondered as I was preparing this, who needs to hear this this morning? Whether things feel like they're falling apart, whether that's in your personal life or in the world around us, or you feel responsible for so much, the burden is heavy, then hear the Spirit say to us this morning, in him all things hold together. In him, we are protected and prevented from things disintegrating into utter chaos. If Christ is the creator and sustainer of all life, then we cannot live independently of him. We are servants of him who must daily trust that he would protect us, care for us, hold us, and sustain us. And I just want to follow the Spirit's prompting on this for a moment before we study the second section of the poem, because I hear this tension that Christ holds all things together. And I see this at play the most in the story of Mary and Martha, because I think we see this truth come to life. Martha is hosting Jesus, concerned about the many practical things that she has to contend with. Mary, her sister, on the other hand, sits at the Lord's feet and listens to his words. And the gospel account tells us that Martha was distracted by many things. And she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all of the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And this verb that is used to describe Martha, distracted, is then repeated again by Jesus when he replies to her saying, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, but only one thing is needed. Because this verb distracted has fascinated me because it literally means to be torn apart, to be pulled in multiple directions, to be consumed by other things, And in this verse in Colossians, we see that our being is to be held together by Christ. Hear the Spirit say to us this morning, you are held. In him, all things are held together. And it's a helpful, reassuring image for us when we feel pulled apart and distracted. Because in this famous, complex, emotive, sibling scene we face this reality that distraction and devotion can't be mixed together. Paul here is calling the church in Colossians to a higher devotion, to look again at who Jesus is, to sit at his feet almost. He's encouraging them to acknowledge who Jesus is so that they wouldn't live their lives pulled apart anymore. 
that they would know this peace that the verse goes on to talk about because of Jesus' blood and this reality that they are held and in Christ all things are held together. But this morning, I don't want us to just stop there and hear that Christ holds all things together because not only is he holding all things together, he is in the business of making all things new. Humanity is not held on by a thread, as sometimes it might feel like it. Christ is victorious, and he is restoring his creation. Because in this second section, if we come back to Colossians, verses 18 to 20 teach us that Jesus is the head of the new creation. And there becomes a shift in emphasis, if you like, from Paul's argument that Jesus is ruling over creation, involved in creation, and holding creation, the past and the present. And we see a shift to the future, where Christ is making all things new. And we hear through these verses the aims of the invisible God, why Jesus came in the first place. And we hear and we understand that Jesus came with the aim of reconciliation. So in a sense, we're asking, why is Jesus now still involved in creation? And how does his death and resurrection lead to making all things new? Paul first describes Jesus in verse 18 to be the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the new body known as the church, the new humanity made possible. And we are now reconciled to God again because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So what does it mean that Jesus is the head of the church? To answer that, I think we have to answer the question, why did Jesus come to earth? Why did God become visible through Jesus? And we answer that because he came with a purpose, a purpose to reconcile us back to God, to restore a broken relationship between us and the Father, to reverse the curse of sin that perverted our relationship with God. Verse 21 in chapter 1 of Colossians says that once we were alienated, we were enemies of God, but now we can be presented holy in God's sight without blemish or accusation because of Christ's death and resurrection. The verse before that, in verse 20, tells us that it was God's great pleasure to dwell in all fullness in Christ. We hear the pleasure of God today sending his son to save us. For God so loved the world, he sent his son Jesus. And then through Jesus, he reconciles all things, whether in earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus came to restore our relationship with God. But this leaves us still asking, why does the church exist if Jesus is the head of the church? The church exists to fulfill Jesus's mission, to carry on with the mission that Jesus came with to reconcile us back to the Father. We exist to carry on to reconcile people to God with Christ being the head of the church, the head of the mission. So how is Jesus making all things new? He is the head of the church, and he is using his church. 
And don't we forget that sometimes, that Jesus is the head of our church, the head of the church. And our ecclesiology as a Baptist church, the way we're structured is that we meet as members or partners of the church to discern the mind of Christ, to hear what God is saying, to hear what Jesus, the head of the church, is saying for us to then do. And that doesn't just mean guidance or direction. This idea of Jesus being the head of the church means that he is our source of life. And that as a church, we don't exist or function without him. He is our source of strength and life. And then we read the next verse, that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. What does this mean? How does this add to the description of who Jesus is? How does this reveal his purpose that he is making all things new? Christ's resurrection, the fact that he was raised to life, meant that he broke the curse of sin and death, was raised to life again so that we may have new life. He was the first in that sequence that opens up for us a new realm of possibility. We hear Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 9, that because I live, you will live. Jesus' resurrection provides this status that, again, that he is Lord over creation because he has conquered death and has risen to life. We read in Philippians that God has, because of this, exalted him to the highest place. In him and in every way, Christ is superior, and he gave him a name that is above every other name. Paul urges this community of believers to not lose sight of who Jesus is, of who he is, of what he's done, and what he is continuing to do. And how we, having a faith in Christ, have got this reality, how we have a relationship with God in the first place. And this is not a lecture to them, but he ends it in verse 23, encouraging them to continue in their faith, established and firm, to not move from this hope that they have held in the gospel. In Jesus, there is a promise that he is making all things new. The response required of them is a higher devotion, an acknowledgement of how supreme Christ is. Today, there is a call for us in this as well. Firstly, there's a call for us to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's a call for us as a community to acknowledge the pressures the cultural pressures we are under, and to turn our gaze again to how supreme Jesus is. There's a call for us to remember that in Christ, he is holding all things together. And I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to pray for anyone this morning who feels pulled apart or distracted by many things, pulled in different directions, that you would know Christ centering your life again. I wonder if there's a call for us to put Christ in the center place of our lives. And I wonder if there's a response for us as a whole church to acknowledge that he is head 
of the church. Acknowledging who Christ is, that he is in the business of making all things new and our part to play in that. Can I pray for us? And then I invite the band to come and Luke's going to lead us in a response. But let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that as we study your word, we would be led to devotion. Jesus, we acknowledge again who you are. You are the image of the invisible God. You are the creator, the ruler of all creation. You are the sustainer of life. You are the head of the church. You are the reconciler who makes it possible for us to have a relationship with you. And you are the one who will make all things new. Father, grow us in spiritual understanding, I pray. Grow us for a life of devotion that is free from distraction. I pray that we would know this peace, that we get to live with you, secure that we can have a relationship with you. Christ, in you, all things are held together. And I pray that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus again. Lord, would we look you fully in the face and know that in the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Amen.